0: Well, today we come uh, to what I've called the second act of the Samson narrative. Last week we covered the first act from Judges chapter 13, where God's provision of a miracle child set apart to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines was relayed. Here in Judges chapter 14 and 15, we find Samson, Act 2 where, a, related, uh, where a, a series of events in which the now-grown Samson embarks on his mission, his mission to begin to save the people, however unknowingly it may have been to him. The first thing the narrator tells us is that Samson wanted a Philistine wife because, as he tells his father, she was right in his eyes. And this phrase Right in his eyes, that encapsulates the major problem of the entire book of Judges for the people Israel. They did, as that refrain will be repeated, they did what was right in their eyes, ignoring that which was right in God's eyes. And so here, uh, Samson did what was right in his eyes, selecting this Philistine woman from Timnah because she was attractive. She was right in his eyes. This relatively simple desire, the desire for a wife uh, to whom he was attracted, leads to a series of events in chapters 14 and 15 that escalate quickly. Uh, as we, if you were to read through Judges chapter 14 and 15, something I would encourage you to do, You would, uh, at least I get this picture in my mind, and perhaps this says something about me. As I'm reading these escalation of events, I think of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. (laughs) Uh, A snowball begins to roll downhill, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it completely destroys something at the base of the mountain. Well, here, these events in Samson's life, in Samson Act 2, they get bigger, and they get bigger, and they get bigger. Comfortable complacency between the Philistines and the Israelites becomes tension, becomes violence. And all along the way, Samson displays his character, self-interested and self-absorbed, impulsive and violent, immature and out of control. And yet, as one author refers to him, a weapon in God's hand. In these chapters, Judges chapter 14 and 15, three times over the course of the narrative, we read the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. And in each of those three times, in each of those three cases, the Spirit of the Lord enabled Samson to perform an amazing feat. He killed a young lion with his bare hands like you would kill a goat. He struck down 30 men in Ashkelon, and then he struck down 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, this rascal uh, was used by God to begin to deliver his people from the hands of the Philistines. And as we consider this second act of the life of Samson, let's do so together by considering three points, three aspects. First, in Judges chapter 14 and 15, we see uh, in these chapters the strange providence of God. And second, in these chapters, we, we see the very real struggle between the flesh and the spirit as our human need, our deepest human need, is revealed. And then third, in these chapters, we're pointed towards Jesus, who is the anti-Samson, who is the only one who can meet that need that Samson reveals. We tend, uh, at least I do, uh, I like the, I like my heroes pure, certainly a little more pure than Samson appears to be. I don't know about the rest of you. Do you guys like pure heroes, or you like heroes that are flawed and broken? And like, is Darth Vader your hero, Mitch, or do you like Luke Skywalker? I mean, this tells us a lot about who you are. <laughs> at least you know uh, a few decades ago. Uh, We we like our heroes to be pure. We like them to be wearing the white hat, so to speak. In fact, think about Lone Ranger, the original Lone Ranger, right? He literally, uh, the good guy who wore a white hat, literally the good guy who uh, rode a white horse and who fought against bad guys that did what? They wore black, right? And wanting heroes to be pure, we can sometimes begin to think that God will only... And maybe even think that God can only use heroes or people who are pure. But then there is Samson. Samson is far from pure and yet is used by God. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, he's called a hero of the faith. As a side note, I would say that the brutal honesty with which the scriptures portray the main characters of their story is actually a pointer towards their truth and authenticity and reality. Samson, far from pure, broken, fouled up, a knucklehead, yet used by God. In this second act, uh, the the key verse here is is chapter 14, verse 4. I want to draw your attention to that. Judges, chapter 14, verse 4. Samson's father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. His desire for a wife was was right in Samson's eyes, but there was a deeper underlying purpose. It was actually from the Lord. His his father rejected or wanted to reject, tried to reject a Timnite Philistine woman on cultural and ethnic grounds, and yet he didn't know that this was from the Lord. This uh, chapter 14, verse 4, is the theological explanation for all of Samson's actions, even the most despicable ones. They are from the Lord. God is at work. And even in Samson, even in this knucklehead and through all of his knuckleheadery, God was at work. And how can this be? We want heroes that are pure. We sometimes think that God can only or will only use heroes who are pure, and yet God uses this guy. What's going on here? Let's consider God and his providence. Providence is is a theological, it's a wonderful churchy word, a theological term, it's not just a city in Rhode Island. Uh, Providence refers to God's governing work over all of the universe, over all of his creation. The Bible is quite clear from beginning to end that nothing that has happened, nothing that is happening and nothing that will happen is beyond the scope of God and his sovereign government. From beginning to end, in in, in the Bible, God is always at work to bring about His plan, to bring about His purpose for and within creation. God is at work, fundamentally. But what about human agency? Where does this leave us as human beings who can make decisions, who have human actions, whose actions create consequences? Where do we fit? What can we affirm from Scripture, we can affirm from Scripture two things that sometimes seem like they're paradoxical. First, God governs over all time, history, people, and events, and yet He allows and upholds the human ability to act, to make real decisions that have real consequences and real results, and for which they will be really held accountable. What we're seeing here in Judges chapter 14 and 15, what we see throughout all of Scripture is that God works through human actions and decisions to accomplish the ends He intends and that He purposes even evil ones. Theologian R.C. Sproul puts it this way God works out His will through the actions of human wills without violating the freedom of those human wills. And that's what I'm calling God's strange providence, His ability, His willingness, even to work through humans, even sinful humans. Anglican Bishop John Rogers has explained, since he is actively working out his purpose in and through all things, he makes even the evil of men to serve him and redeems the sufferings of the saints. Things, therefore, never get out of his control or far from his, fall from his sovereign hands and shepherding care. That's sort of the key for us to understand Samson. The key for us to understand how it is that this impure human agent can be used by God, set apart by God, to deliver, to begin the deliverance of his people. God is in control. God is in control of all the events and all the occurrences within his creation. And so far from being willy-nilly or flying by the seat of our pants, creation and time and history are moving towards an end, God's intended end, and he is the one who's directing it. In the end, God's purposes for his created order will indeed be accomplished, and he will do so in the means that he sees fit, the means that he sees appropriate, even if that means using a flawed and fouled-up human being like Samson, and like me, and dare I say it, like you. At his news conference on the morning of, uh, after the beginning of the 2003 attacks in Iraq, uh, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld was asked by a reporter, quote, about the apparent failure to follow the war plan. Rumsfeld replied dryly, I don't believe you have the war plan. <laughs> we might look at the life and character of Samson and think, well, this, this isn't going according to plan. Things are not right. But the reality is we don't have God's plan. And what is happening in Samson's life is happening under the providential sovereignty of God. Just as the rest of Scripture and the rest of human history, here God is at work accomplishing His plan and His purpose. To those who may object to this idea of God's providence, and there are some, uh, to those who may object to God, the, the idea of God using flawed people, and there are some, I would politely suggest to them that they have too small a view of God. To think that God doesn't have governing providence Of over creation is to ignore the vast majority of of biblical revelation, and to think that God can or will only use pure and good people is to claim authority over God, dictating to God your terms on his behavior, defining God as you see fit. As Tim Keller puts it, to think and believe in this way would mean he is limited by humans and is only allowed to work when people are being good and making godly choices. It would mean that God does not work by grace, taking the initiative to save, but that he works in response to good works, waiting for people to help him. The amazing truth is that God, in his strange providence, works through sinners in sinful situations to accomplish his purpose, and it's really for his glory that he does those things. Now, Samson looms large in our imagination this morning, rightly so, but the greatest example of God at work in and through sinners is the crucifixion of Jesus. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Saint Peter explains in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, "This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, that's God's providence, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." This is how great the God of the Bible is. Those who murdered Jesus did so out of their real evil and their real wicked intent and their real action. And yet, God providentially and sovereignly arranged things to work according to His own purposes to fulfill His redemptive plan. That's how great the God of the Bible is. And so we see here in Samson, Act Two, this strange providence of God. He works out His plan. He works out His purpose, even through a scoundrel, knuckleheaded scumbag like Samson. And in Samson, we also see, we also catch a glimpse of ourselves. We begin to see the reality of the battle between spirit and flesh. We see our deepest need revealed. As we've said said and as we've seen, Samson is quite human. Far from a cardboard cutout, far from a hero of a 1950s western, he's a real person, real flesh, real blood, and really fouled up. Far from being a hero that is unaffected by his flesh, Samson is a complete portrait of a human being stumbling toward that which God has called him to be and do and created him for, and in the end, never really achieving it. In every way conceivable within the Old Testament, Samson was set apart for God and for God's use. He was born into the people of Israel. He was called and commissioned while he was, even before he was conceived in his mother's womb, he was given special purpose, a special mission, and he was given the Holy Spirit when it was time for him to act for his people. And yet, throughout the course of his life, Samson lives according to his own flesh, according to his own desires, according to his own eyes. In all of this, Samson behaves more like a Philistine than he does an Israelite. I think we can say that Samson even personifies the greater problems of Israel, attracted to foreign wives, caught up in foreign culture, complacent in that. And while Samson may not have actively worshipped a foreign god, he certainly didn't pay much attention to Yahweh, the one who called and created him. Like Israel as a whole, Samson was far too comfortable with and conforms to the Philistines. His pursuit of a Philistine wife and his eating of honey out of the dead body of the lion were violations of God's law. Samson's handling and touching of the lion's carcass, his participation in the wedding feast, which was a week long drinking game, those were va- violations of his Nazarite vows. All along the way in chapters 14 and 15, his character, Samson's character, is being tested. He's being checked. Will you be faithful to God and God's word to you? And all along the way, the answer is a flat-out no. Even while the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson in order to empower him to act and deliver, Samson showed only contempt for his vows and for his calling. He sins, and he leads his parents to sin. Even as he performs the feats of strength, he operates according to that which is right in his eyes, and the violence grows as vengeance is taken. More Philistine than Israelite. Samson is an example of the battle between the spirit and the flesh, and he's, he, as he reveals to us the deepest human need, which is a new heart, a transformed core of being. There seems to have been real conflict within Samson through these chapters, a, a conflict that he's not particularly interested or valiant in fighting. This conflict was between what St. Paul calls the, the desires of the flesh in Galatians 5, the desires of the spirit. For the most part Samson operated out of the works of the spirit, works of the flesh as St. Paul identifies as sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and if that wasn't enough, Paul adds and things like these. That's how Samson lived. He did not walk In the spirit, he didn't set his mind on the things of the spirit. He set his mind on the things of the flesh. He didn't live according to what God called right and good. He lived according to what was right in his own eyes. He didn't live according to the calling and commission that he was given by God. He lived according to what the flesh wanted. Why? Anyone seen the fantastic Mr. Fox, a 2009 animated comedy film based on Roald Dahl's children's novel? Just me and Ethan and Chris. Oh, there we got a couple more. Fantastic. It's great. Fantastic, Mr. Fox. I highly recommend it. Uh, don't watch it now. We're still doing things here, folks. But The story is about a fox, a crafty fox named Mr. Fox. He, he steals food from farmers. And One day, while raiding a squab farm, Mr. Fox and his wife, Felicity, trigger a trap, and they become caged. In this trap, in this cage, Felicity tells Mr. Fox that she's pregnant. And she pleads with him to find a safer job once they escape. Escape they do. Farmers are incompetent at trapping foxes, apparently. And Mr. Fox and Felicity do indeed escape, and he becomes a newspaper columnist. They have their family, and they move into a big home at the base of a tree. But two years later, that's 12 fox years for those of you counting... After promising Felicity that he would quit stealing, Fox returned to his old ways. Every night, he snuck out to steal from local farmers. And finally, the farmers eventually, they just get fed up with Mr. Fox's thieving ways, so they go on the offensive, and they begin to dig their way into the fox's home at the base of this tree. Fox and his family huddle underground. They've got nowhere to go. They are once again trapped because of his thieving ways. Felicity tells Fox 12 years ago, you made a promise to me while we're caged inside that fox trap that if we survived, you would never steal another chicken, turkey, goose, duck, or a squab, whatever they are, and I believed you. She starts to cry, and she says, why did you lie to me? fox's response is quite telling, because I'm a wild animal. That's who he is. And she says, "But you're also a husband and father and Mr. Fox says, "I'm just trying to, to tell you the truth about myself." Mr. Fox couldn't change his behavior because of who he is on the inside. Samson couldn't change his behavior because of who he is on the inside, and that reveals to us the deepest need. to act differently, we need to be made different where? on the inside. What the Bible calls the heart, what it really refers to the core being, the innermost part of who we are. The truth about Samson was found in his character as his behavior flowed out from his heart. Like Mr. Fox, Samson needs to be changed from the inside out. Like Mr. Fox and like Samson, we humans need to be changed from the inside out. We need to have new hearts. We need to have new beings. And so while Samson was used by God to accomplish God's plan and purpose, Samson's heart here in the second act from all appearances was not changed the spirit of the lord yes rushed upon him but did it linger throughout the pages of the old testament while there may be exceptions the holy spirit came upon specific people at specific times for specific purposes and while these men and women exhibit varying degrees of faithfulness their hearts don't seem to have been changed at least not in the way that we need In the pages of the Old Testament, perhaps we can say that the Holy Spirit simply gives us a taste of the fullness to come as it operates. And in this taste, it reveals both our need and the glory of what God will do for humanity through Jesus. We need the innermost being to be changed. What we need is the Holy Spirit to come and do that changing work, the Holy Spirit, in an abiding and permanent way. And that is exactly what God promised through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36. God promises to the people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We see in these chapters the strange providence of God. We see in these chapters the very real struggle between the flesh and the spirit as our human need to be changed from the inside out, to be given new hearts, is revealed. And we are pointed towards Jesus, the anti samson the only one who is able to meet our deepest need. In Samson, we see Jesus not by comparison, but by contrast. Whereas Samson was self-interested, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve others. Whereas Samson seems to have held his calling and his commission in contempt, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, willingly became incarnate through the Virgin Mary and became man, embracing that which he was called and commissioned to do. When Samson was tempted with the honey, he failed. We're told in Hebrews, that in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus was tempted in every way imaginable and yet was without sin. And so when Jesus was tempted, he relied upon God and God's word and resisted temptation. Samson was used by God despite himself. Jesus was perfectly obedient, only doing what God had given him to do. In fact, the Gospel of St. John is very clear on this point. Jesus always and only did what was pleasing to the Father. He came down from heaven to do the will of the Father who sent him. Whereas Samson mirrored Israel in his sin, Jesus was and is true Israel who fulfilled the law. Samson could only begin to deliver his people Jesus completes the salvation that he offers. Samson couldn't change his own heart. He certainly couldn't change the hearts of Israel. Jesus, however, is the greater judge who fully delivers and is able to transform, who is able to make us different. Jesus is the one through whom we are able to receive that which we need, the abiding and permanent spirit that changes our hearts, that turns us from wild animals into children of God. God's promise of Ezekiel chapter 36 finds its fulfillment in the gift of Jesus and in his actions which make that gift possible his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Again, from St. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this Jesus that was crucified according to the perfect foreknowledge of the Father, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witness. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. A little bit later in the same sermon, he says then, Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That what Samson did not have for all of his advantages in gifting, God gives to all who believe in Jesus, the abiding and permanent gift of the Holy Spirit, the one who changes us from the inside out. From time to time, I hear from people, and I feel this way myself sometimes, that, that we're too messed up to be used by God or to serve Him. I hear from people who feel they're too fouled up, they've made too big of mistakes. And quite frankly, in some cases, just simply means in our human, humanity, we've sinned. But if we learn anything from Samson, it is that God, in his strange providence, uses us as we are, but is not content to leave us as he finds us. Rather, he pours out the Holy Spirit through Jesus to change us from the inside out. God loves us and will not leave us as we are. In his love, he provides his Holy Spirit in an abiding way for our transformation. As that Spirit comes to conform us into the image of Christ, true Israel, the anti Samson, the greatest judge. Here today in Samson Acts 2, we see the strange providence of God. We see the struggle between flesh and the Spirit and the deepest human need for a new heart. And we're pointed toward Jesus, the anti Samson, who is the only one who can meet our need. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks. Lord, we praise you and give you thanks that you are mighty to save. We praise you and give you thanks that you are willing to save. And we praise you and give you thanks that you are in control of all things. Lord, lead us into repentance where we need it, that we might find forgiveness and change of character in the grace of Jesus. Strengthen us in our faith where it is weak. And encourage us where we need to be built up. Holy Spirit, come in the name of Jesus and do your work, conforming us into the very image of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to the proclamation of the word in adoration and praise.